This is an audio essay. To read the actual essay, go to mahanmccann.substack.com. The link is in the description on Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. Oh! Philosophical Guide to Self-Development, Part 5 In the last few essays, we have followed John Verveke's argument in the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series to rebuild the conceptual scaffolding of meaning that is missing for the modern mind. A large part of this conceptual scaffolding is human growth and development because a large amount of living a meaningful life is feeling like we are growing and developing. This experience of growth and development is situated within a normative order, A normative order is how we know right from wrong, identify if we are getting better or worse, and know how we should, must, and ought to behave. Ultimately, a normative order orients us morally in the world and our relationships. In Verveke's Awakening from the Meanest Crisis series, he argues that the normative order comes from the 3rd century Neoplatonist sage Plotinus. Plotinus did not consider himself an innovator, but a communicator of the existing Platonic tradition. Plotinus essentially integrated all the best parts of ancient philosophy into his Neoplatonic philosophy, Platonism, Aristotelian science, and the therapeutics of Stoicism. So to understand Plotinus, we must first introduce Aristotle and then the Stoics to the canon of this series. Brief and sketch-like as their introductions may be, their addition is unavoidable and necessary for the argument to continue. I will broadly describe John's argument in this essay, but then do some integration and comparison with Peterson's hero metamythology and Alistair McIntyre's revivification of virtue ethics in After Virtue. Aristotle's theory of growth and development. Aristotle was Plato's student, but famously split from him, saying, I love Plato, but I love the truth more. Aristotle split with Plato over change, more accurately, human growth and development. If Plato was concerned with the eternal and changeless being, Aristotle was concerned with becoming, This series is, of course, about growth and development, so Aristotle is going to be a cornerstone of our discussion. Aristotle was the one who invented the concepts of potential and actuality, which we often take for granted these days. He used the analogy of a chair to describe the process. The chair's wood is the potential, and the finished version is the actualized chair. He points out that the wood, pre-actualization, could be a table or a ship. However, once you introduce the form of a chair... Then the wood, the potential, starts acting like a chair. When you impose the form of the chair on the wood, it starts acting like a chair. In other words, you inform it. This is where we get the notion of information from, and deformation, and transformation. Plato's theory of forms is discussed implicitly in the last essay. Verveke argues that a form is the structural, functional organisation of an object. For example, a bird isn't just a list of its features, a tail, feathers, beak, skin, organs, etc. A bird is a gestalt. How these parts fit together and function as a whole is called a bird. Aristotle thinks we understand what a bird is if we can grasp this form. The form is what renders something intelligible or understandable. For Aristotle to know something is to share in its form. For example, who knows better what a chair is? The person who can describe a chair or the person who actually makes a chair? 
Aristotle would say the latter, because the person who can make the chair has conformed their mind to the structural functional organization of the chair to turn the potential into the actualized. This is called his conformity theory of knowledge. When you make the chair, you share the same form and mind as the actualized chair. In other words, you become one. Aristotle believes that what living things are doing in growth and development is the same as the wood in the chair. In other words, we are self-making. The central role of virtue ethics for growth and development. For Aristotle, how we are self-making depends on our character, that word that keeps cropping up in this series. Character is made up of constraints in our behaviour, virtues and vices, which brings us back to virtue ethics, which we discussed in the second essay. Gravecki explains if somebody is behaving out of character, say they lie when they usually tell the truth, we would say they are acting out of character. In other words, they are not acting in accord with the constraints that normally govern their behaviour, their norms. For Aristotle, virtues are constraints in our growth and development that we can consciously control and influence. The ultimate aim of virtue ethics is, of course, wisdom. And wisdom is a meta-virtue, which basically means the ability to consciously cultivate your virtues to create a set of virtues that are regulating your growth and development so you actualize your potential. This might sound a bit nebulous, but Aristotle recommends a golden mean practice to identify the proper constraints in our behavior. He identifies the virtue as a mean between two extremes, a deficiency and an excess. For example, Aristotle believed that the virtue of courage is a mean between the extremes of cowardice and recklessness. The virtuous person would act with courage in the face of danger, but would not act recklessly without regard for the consequences. Therefore, if we pay attention to our experience and identify examples of cowardice and recklessness in ourselves or others, then we can start to identify the mean of courage and consciously cultivate these constraints in our growth and development to actualize our potential, which is also developing wisdom. For Plato, we had to structure the psyche with an inner harmony to connect us to reality. Aristotle gives us a more fine-grained picture of this process. By extending the Platonic anagoge with a self-cultivation of character that systematically overcomes self-deception, realizes wisdom, and enhances the structure of the psyche and your contact with reality. For Aristotle, this is to be rational, and to be fully rational as possible is the function of a human being. The Aristotelian telos and well-being. Well-being is a popular topic these days, and I like to think about it as Eric Fromm describes in The Art of Being. Well-being is to function well as a human being. Again, this echoes the first example from McIntyre that we discussed in a previous essay. To normatively evaluate human functioning, we must specify a telos first. We can say a watch is a good watch if the watch tells the time, because telling the time is the function of a watch. The function telos or end that the watch is made for and its proximity to or from the end allows us to normatively evaluate the watch. Aristotle gives us a telos, which is to become as fully human as possible. He uses the example of the telos of a knife and that the telos of a knife is to cut and therefore the virtue or excellence of the knife is to cut well. And he argues that the uniquely human thing is to be rational Therefore, the human telos is to become as rational as possible. As Vereke argues, to become as fully human as possible. 
This again might sound a bit vague, but Aristotle's telos combined with Christianity was the general telos of humanity for over a thousand years, which is a pretty good result. John writes in the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series, What are those characteristics that are unique to us, meaning humans? Well, here is where Aristotle gives the actual revolution answer. Your capacity for overcoming self-deception, your capacity for cultivating your character, for realizing wisdom, and for enhancing the structure of the psyche and your contact with reality. That's what rational means. These days, we often conflate being rational with being logical, but it was a much broader concept than that in its inception. These days, Aristotle's telos is captured in what's called eudaimonic well-being, as opposed to hedonic well-being, which is about maximizing pleasure and avoiding pain. The word eudaimonia is a hotbed of translation issues, but the most fitting in English is flourishing, a life well-lived through virtue. The end goal of eudaimonic well-being is self-actualization, meaning, and becoming fully rational in the sense that we previously discussed. John gives a more in-depth description in the series when he says, Wisdom is the cultivation of a virtual engine, a character that regulates your self-development, in fact your self-making, so that you can actualize your potential. You can live up to your potential. And what does living up to that potential mean? It means, and we talked about it, it means moving through that hierarchy that we talked about last time. The hierarchy of actualization, from the mere plant to the animate thing to the mental thing to the rational thing. So to be wise, to live up to your potential, is to cultivate a character that most helps you realize your capacity for rational self-reflection. Your capacity to appropriately take charge of your ability to engage in your self-actualization, self-realization, and to do so in such a way that fulfills the potential of your humanity that you most realize, reveal, actualize the characteristics that make us uniquely human. So much of this series is about developing the self, actualizing. And so we see how essential Aristotle's framework here is where he sets up a hierarchy of being, he sets up levels of being from the less real, purely potential being to the more actualized, integrated, complexified self. For Aristotle, a person that lived only as a plant would be a debauched human being, as Rebecca says. Hence, to become more real, then, is through this process of rationally, reflectively cultivating your character and structuring your own psyche. In this framework, being more integrated, more actualized in what what it means to be a good person. And I consider it to be the work of self-development. We will encounter this hierarchy again and these levels of being when we return to Plotinus. Virtue ethics and the hero metamythology. As suggested previously in the series, the telos of functioning was participation in the process of relevance realization, the hero metamythology presented narratively. And so does this cause problems with Aristotle's telos of becoming fully rational? Do we have a conflict here or can we integrate the two? No. In fact, I would say Aristotle's virtue ethics is a philosophical perspective on the same process of insight and transformations of character described by the hero story for three reasons. One, virtue ethics and narrative ethics are deeply intertwined. McIntyre argues in After Virtue that a narrative is the default description of human action. Therefore, to normatively evaluate human action or suggest optional functioning of human action, we will need to invoke narrative. In McIntyre's argument, 
narratives and myths capture proper and improper virtue and vice for our education and emulation. This is very similar to Peterson, who argues we tell stories of the individuals who embody the ideal pattern of action and then imitate them. As Peterson says, first we imitate the pattern underlying admirable behaviours, then we encode that pattern into rituals, then into narratives, then into philosophical argumentation, then finally we gain an empirical scientific understanding of it. In this way, the image of the hero, step by step, becomes ever clearer and ever more broadly applicable. McIntyre argues that the practice of virtue is not just a matter of following rules or principles, but instead a matter of developing a habit of acting in a specific way over time. This habit of acting is formed through a process of repetition and reinforcement and is shaped by the larger narrative structure of one's life. The link between the two is the cultivation of character, while virtue ethics offers an explicit philosophical framework and practices for cultivating character, narrative ethics takes a broader, more descriptive view of the same process. Number two, they are both different perspectives on insight. We have previously defined an insight from Brett Substack as letting go of a previous way that we are framing a problem which has been rendered dysfunctional or non-optimal for whatever reason, and adopting a new, more functional frame that allows us to solve whatever problem we are engaged with more effectively. The hero metamythology is a dramatic description of an insight. While Aristotle's golden mean is an individual practice designed to generate insight into virtue and hence good character. Interestingly, Wikipedia says the earliest origins of Aristotle's golden mean came from the story of Daedalus and Icarus. Daedalus, a famous artist of his time, built feathered wings for himself and his son so they might escape the clutches of King Minos. Daedalus warns his beloved son, whom he loved so much, to fly the middle course, between the sea spray and the sun's heat. Icarus did not heed his father. He flew up and up until the sun melted the wax off his wings. For not heeding the middle course, he fell into the sea and drowned. Here we can see how the idea, the message of the golden mean, starts out as a lesson from a myth, but is then operationalized by Aristotle non-narratively for individuals in his golden mean. I would argue if you were to describe your experience of undertaking the golden mean, say while learning courage in the previous example, you would again end up with a narrative description. If we gathered many stories of this practice together of different people learning courage and combined them and then abstracted the gist of these stories into a composite description of learning the middle way, I bet we would once again end up with some kind of hero myth. This highlights the difference between pursuing an insight personally and then the culturally generalized vision of the structure of an insight, which is provided by stories and myths. We can see in this example the deep relationship between philosophy and myth and how both are ultimately aimed at provoking insight, although in different ways. Number three, being wise is optimal relevance realization relevance realization is our ability to intelligently ignore the vast number of non-optimal solutions and zero in on the small subset of solutions that are optimal or nearly optimal anderson substack getting good at relevance realization is the same as the goal of aristotle's rational telos it's becoming wise your capacity for overcoming self-deception your capacity for cultivating your character for realizing wisdom and for enhancing the structure of your psyche and your contact with reality that's what rational means 
To be wise would be to be like a god and to be capable of realizing what is relevant in every situation and always doing and knowing the right thing, but without ever checking through all of the possible variables in a situation. In this sense, we can align Aristotle's telos with the process of relevance realization, because to advance in rationality, to advance in wisdom, would be to properly apportion our attention and to care about the right things at the right time, and to master the process of relevance realization. To have your constraints set up so that you are optimally engaged all of the time. And again, as Plato said, to be wise is to be like a god, which is why we are lovers of wisdom rather than wise ourselves. But the point is that you can see overlap between the goal of Aristotle's telos and the engagement in relevance realization, which is the hero meta mythology narratively. Conclusion. Aristotle provided much of the scientific foundations for the last thousand years before the Enlightenment and still has important things to teach us today. I'd like to demonstrate from Viveki's work on Aristotle why his theory of growth and development and the invention of potential and actuality are so relevant to our project of a modern account of self-development. And we will re-encounter them soon when we come to Plotinus, who brought a lot of these practices together. Finally, I've drawn attention to identities between the ideal of the hero metamythology and the ideal of Aristotle's virtue ethics, which might not be a one-to-one relationship, but somewhat different perspectives on the development of character from the first and third person perspective. Either way, they both focus on prioritizing character and characters of transformations towards approximating something like becoming fully rational, becoming fully wise. In the following essay, we will be looking at the therapeutics of the Stoics and inner peace, which is one of the two meta-desires suggested by Plato, along with coming into contact with reality. As always, if you enjoy the essays, please feel free to share it with somebody else. I'm trying to stay off social media, so word of mouth is what we rely on. Thanks for your time. Peace.